Welcome to the Sounds of the World. We are your hosts, Hillary and Bill. Together, we're going to travel around the world to discover new music, discuss musical topics, and interview fascinating people. Our world is a buffet of music, and it is time to eat. Today we have a wonderful opportunity to speak to a uh, wonderful young and up-and-coming composer. He's been described by Theodore Jones as a brilliant composer, just barely in his 20s, who seems to make waves wherever he goes. And the Dallas Morning News has called him a most impressive talent. He was born in Dallas, Texas. He attended the Richland College, studied at Southern Methodist University with Dr. Lane Harder, as well as studied with Dr. Winston Stone at the University of Texas at Dallas, and has previously worked with renowned composers such as David Mislanka, Libby Larson, David Jube, and Robert Xavier Rodriguez. I met this young man after a mutual friend introduced us to each other. I was quickly taken back by his abilities, raw talent, and emotional maturity for being such a young man. When he isn't composing, he's also an avid conductor, acting as a one-two punch. He has led ensembles such as the Orchestra Seattle, the Brevard Symphonia, the Texas Christian University Symphony Orchestra. He studied conducting under Miguel Harth Bedoya of the Fort Worth Symphony, Dr. German Gutierrez at TCU, Will White from Orchestra Seattle, and many more. When he is finding any free time uh, from being a student, composer, conductor, he's also an avid writer and maintains a music blog as well as contributes guest articles to other blogs such as the Women's Philharmonic Advocacy. Please welcome Quinn Mason. Woohoo! <laughs> Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, welcome, welcome to our, our little podcast. It's so great to talk to you. And, um, you know, like I said, we had seen, we'd known each other for a little bit. Uh, so it's great to finally be able to talk to you uh, voice to voice, so to speak. Oh, yes, for sure. Like, um, <laughs> thank you for having me here. It's great to be here. Great. Well, I'm just along for the ride. So. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, so I guess a basic question that we always like to ask, and I think a lot of people are interested in is like, so what's your musical background? Do you come from a musical family? Um, is this kind of something that you've always been brought into or is it just kind of like the one-off? Yeah, it's a bit, it's a bit of a weird background for me uh, about, you know, how I got started with classical music because it's mostly something I discovered on my own and something I kind of, you know, had to, you know, study and, pick up on my own. So I'm not really, my family isn't musical. I'm pretty much the only musical one. I mean, I do have a couple of family members who have played musical instruments, but I'm, you know, the, the only one who's actually made a career out of it. And, you know, I got started really early. I'm 24 now, but I started at the age of 10 when in elementary school, I joined required piano class. And 
you know, from there, I, you know, got started with, started playing the piano and started, you know, learning the basics of music. And some years after that, even, you know, a couple of years after that, uh, I started learning the cello. And it was around that same time that I started with composition as well. So I, I started with a number of things and I gradually kind of found my way into something I love doing, which is composition. And then conducting came a little bit later when I was in, in high school. So. Right. What kind of drew you into being a composer? I did a lot of listening to music and a lot of, you know, studying of it, you know, in the piano class. But I also had mentors who used to give me scores and recordings of the great orchestral repertoire. And that just kind of piqued my interest. Like, you know, at an early age, I was familiar with all the Beethoven symphonies, the last three Tchaikovsky symphonies. And, you know, the Stravinsky ballets and, you know, all just all the great masterworks, you know. Right. And, you know, I did a lot of listening, a lot of studying. And that, that got me really interested to kind of see if I can create my own kind of sound worlds and stuff like that. So, you know, I started with solo pieces that I wrote for mostly myself. And then, you know, like I remember, you know, the very first... One of the very first pieces I ever wrote was like a cello solo because I used to be a cellist, no longer, you know, and then I wrote a trumpet solo and then a piano solo and stuff like that. All of that is lost now, but like, <laughs> you know, it, it's, it no longer exists because I wrote it by hand and I guess I didn't keep up with it, you know, right. <laughs> but like, you know, that gradually grew to like chamber music and some time after that orchestral music and, you know, all of that happened so fast, but it was mostly the result of self-study. So. Very cool. Wow. Holy cow, that's inspirational. I feel like conducting in high school, that just blows my mind. Because <laughs> I, I was really bad in high school. <laughs> that's how I, like, I took my first conducting class in college, and I was like, oh my gosh, you have to have some like gumption and command of the room to do this. And I wasn't prepared at like 22 to do that. So that's, holy cow, hats off to you. <laughs> that's awesome. It's a psychological thing, but it's like, you know, when you're, people know who you are, and it's like, you know, you're, you know what you want to do. You know how to work. It's mm -hmm. really, it gets really easy. So I still get nervous though. You, you just, it's a bunch of people in front of you that like, you know, expect you to like lead them in a piece they already know and stuff like that. So it, of course it gets nervous. And then oh, yeah. add an audience to the back of you watching <laughs> you do that. So not for the faint of heart. No, no. no. I remember they recorded us and I have like a recording of me just like deer in the headlights, waving a baton, like in <laughs> class, being like, this is the like worst moment of my life. <laughs> so much respect, much respect. That's, that's fantastic. Thank you. Yeah. I remember when I was an undergrad and I had to take a conducting course and they were like, okay, everyone needs to get loose in their bodies and explore <laughs> this space. And everyone's just kind of like moving around and waving their arms the around. Method. <laughs> and I'm just kind of like, oh, it's a junior high dance again. I'm just going to do the square move again. <laughs> this is great. <laughs> just, I could not like, I just couldn't get out of my body. So I, I don't know how anyone, everyone makes jokes about conductors, but I don't know how anyone could be a conductor. <laughs> it's, it is weird because when you know, when you spend all your time watching different conductors, like, you know, I went to a lot of DSO rehearsals when I was younger. So they had, you know, whenever Yop was here, Yop von Spaden, mm -hmm. who's mm -hmm. now at the New York Philharmonic, he, around the time I started going to DSO, was when he became music director in 08. Mm -hmm. So I got to see him 
do a lot of the rep, but they also bought in these guest conductors. And I'm, you know, really close with the DSO musicians. Um, so they, you know, you tell me exactly what they think of the conductors, you know. <laughs> so I know who I know who makes the cut and who doesn't. <laughs> yeah. And, you so know, orchestral musicians are like ruthless. <laughs> yes. Yeah. No, they're not messing around. <laughs> they're brutal. Um, so you <clears throat> have talked a little bit about your inspiration or at least what you had studied, the Tchaikovsky and the Beethoven and um I know one of the big ones that you have always seemed to have a love affair with was Stravinsky and his Rite of Spring. Um, there was even an article about you and how you put what the Rite of Spring in like 1100 ways or something like that on YouTube. Oh, the beats. Yeah, that's what it is. <laughs> the 1133 Rite of Spring beats. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, uh, other than the fact that it's such an amazing piece and um, totally almost completely different from everything else that was going on at the time, what kind of really drew you to the Rite of Spring? It's actually a very personal piece because it was one of the very first pieces that I studied when I started formal composition lessons when I was 13. The teacher, you know, gave me, you know, and then my very first assignment was to listen to the Rite of Spring because I had never heard it at that point and mm -hmm. to mark down my observations. So I had a score. I had a recording, which, you know, I, I really shouldn't have started with that recording, but it was the only one I had. It was a 1951 Pierre Monteur Boston Symphony recording, which is extremely messy, but of historical interest because Monteur premiered the Rite of Spring. Oh, wow. So... But so it was, it was, you know, and I was using a diff, diff, different edition of the score and stuff like that. So I, you know, I do remember listening to the piece for the first time and going, what the hell is this? <laughs> getting lost so many times, especially, you know, at the climax in the first part, I just did, I didn't know what was happening. And then the sacrificial dance, like, I was like, what? <laughs> you know, the, the more I listened to the piece, huh? I, said that, I feel like that may be a universal reaction when you hear Rite of Spring. <laughs> I remember being like, what? Like, and then you just, watch it. Well, no. just imagine how that sounded in 1913. Yeah. <laughs> it must have been like, it must have been like what, you know, if you've ever listened to something like Thomas Abbott's has written, it must yeah. have been like that. But <laughs> the more I listened to that piece, the more it grew on me. And, you know, I actually, you know, saw it live about, I've seen it live three times. And then I've assisted it as a conductor wow. uh, back in February when I guest conducted an orchestra Seattle, the music, I was sharing the podium with the music director and the main piece on the program was that, you know, the right of spring. Yeah. And so I assisted them in the rehearsals and that was really cool to have that kind of hands-on experience with that piece. But, you know, the, the very first time I saw it was in 2011 and Yop did it. And so I was at the, I got to, you know, go to the rehearsal for that and see how it, you know, really fit together and stuff like that. It was, it was really cool. So, you know, I'm very intimate with that piece for many years now. Yeah, absolutely. Do you feel like it's one of those things where like the more you listen to it, the more you catch or like maybe there's like an, a moment that you, you weren't even aware of the first time or do you have any of like those, I don't know, how did that piece kind of grow for you? 
It's it's absolutely yeah. It's absolutely that. It's like the more I listen to it, the more I discovered. And even to this day, when I pick up the score, like every single day, I discover something new. It's almost like going through it and like hearing it for the person. It's crazy how that piece is over a hundred years old and it still sounds like it was written yesterday. Yeah. Right? Isn't that just like I, I don't? Oh my gosh, <laughs> I don't even know. <laughs> that's that that's that takes special talent right there. Like you know. Oh yeah. So I yeah. Feel, feel that way about uh, Prokofiev's Second Symphony. It's just um, it's. Those two pieces, they just seem to travel the span of time and not get any older or any diminished. It's amazing. I've not heard that piece, actually. Oh, really? Never. Oh, it's it's only two movements, but, like, the second movement's a theme and variations. Um, but the first mm-hmm. movement is just, like, it's maniacal. It's crazy. I'm not to listen to that then, because I like yeah. crazy. So. <laughs> So you re- you had quite a bit of success with that uh, the video. In fact, you made a second video, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I was bored again. The first video <laughs> came about because I was bored, and then you know I was bored again. So I was like, hmm, I have over seven hundred recordings of the piece. So why not make a second edition? I mean, I have enough recordings to make at least six editions of that video. Wow. Man. So, but I'm not going to make six editions. I think two is enough. <laughs> <laughs> My bored moments to shame. <laughs> It's, it was amazing. Like, I remember a vast majority of them were pretty consistent. And then there was, like, one or two that just, like, it felt like it was just trudging through mud. Like, it was so slow, these big hits. It's like, oh, come on. <laughs> it's really interesting to compare different elements of that, like, how different conductors approach that piece. You know, another element that I compared to that piece was um, the tuba playing. Did you see that video? No, I haven't seen that one. I gotta watch all of these. <laughs> yeah, it's actually called Evolution of Tuba Playing in the Rite of Spring. And it's, it's, it's that big, you know, you know that big moment in the, uh, the, second, the second movement of the first part where the, the tubas have this, this units in F. Right. There are different ways that tubas have played that over mm-hmm. several years. Some, some of them play it strong and some of them play it weak, you know. Is that the entrance of the Magi or whatever? The This is uh, in the August of, of spring. Oh, okay, okay. So, definitely worth checking that out, too. Definitely will. One of the questions we had is, um, or at least I definitely had, uh, is we've had a lot of great interviews with people, uh, young composers, um, Anahita Abasi and Neela Farr and Tyson Davis, and how do you think young composers like yourself and them uh, will definitely, will change, not definitely, but will change the world of classical music? There's so much opportunity now to have diverse voices in the world of classical music and 
people that come from different backgrounds and just so much opportunity and stuff like that. It's going to be a great thing to see all these different. It's definitely going to be a melting pot of new music for sure. Like, you know, you go to the concert hall and you hear like, you know, the same Beethoven symphony or something like that that gets played a thousand times. But with the changing landscape of not only orchestral music, but classical music in general, definitely we're going to be seeing a lot more different views on things and different new voices and stuff like that, which is going to make for very, very interesting auditory experiences in the concert hall and the, the recital hall and all of that. So, and like I said, there's just so much like talent that in my colleagues and, and, and things like that, it's just going to be really amazing to see what kind of new music we, we get to hear in the future for sure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Man, I, I got to get closer to a bigger city. <laughs> I'm in Billings, Montana, and I think Beethoven's on the books when. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I mean, I mean, live close to Houston and there's still like a vast majority that's Beethoven and Haydn and Mozart and, you know, uh, even though they reach out to new composers and young composers all the time, it's still, it's a minor portion of their actual, you know, ballots. So. Hopefully you'll begin to see change in that, especially the, referring to the Houston symphony. Yeah. The HSO. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They're they're definitely going to, because I know the composer in residence, Jimmy Lopez. Yeah. Yeah, he's one of those new diverse voices that I'm yeah. referring to. So oh. yeah, you'll, you'll so see cool. more. I like his music. Jimmy Lopez music is really cool. He's so. a very nice guy, too. Yeah. <laughs> all right, Hillary, put that name on the list, too. <laughs> I know. I'm like, okay, I've got all the notes going right now. <laughs> So what do you think in particular they could do to encourage and support young composers? Definitely. Like I said, there's a lot of uh, different avenues to discover new talent. Like, you know, they do the orchestra readings with the, the American composers orchestra. And they sometimes, you know, they sometimes get like, you know, other professional orchestras involved, like the Minnesota Orchestra or the Buffalo Philharmonic and stuff like that. And, you know, there's, there, there is a way to see what, kind of orchestral music is being written today of course there's also you can also ask around in like the league of american orchestras because they, they keep track of everything and stuff like that you can see what type of new music is being commissioned and premiered and stuff like that and you can even specifically look for you know young composers and then you seek them out and if you like their voices definitely find a way to not only program them but champion them as well and you know you know, being very young, I'm, I've seen a lot of a, a lot of my you know talented colleagues, and I know exactly what kind of music that's being written, you know, by them and stuff like that. And I, I'm also kind of you know fortunate to you know be given you know opportunities to kind of not only to practice my craft but to kind of tell a story and to you know give a platform for my voice too. So, I mean, there's, you know, there's plenty of opportunities to discover new and new and interesting, you know, composers out there for sure. Plenty of opportunities. Oh yeah. Yeah. Man, I uh, love this positive outlook. <laughs> I think so easy. Like, and I just speak for anyone that grew up in rural America. It's like, you don't really, 
like the idea of composing is so far-fetched so it's it's just really exciting to get to you know speak with somebody that is so young and doing so well in your career um just to speak about it so positively be like no the opportunities are out there get the fear out of your head you know there it is so yeah it's not all downhill i mean there's there's a there's a silver lining to it you know i mean you know just so you just really have to kind of make an effort you know because like i said like I, i like to say that you know that the next Shostakovich is out there and the next Mahler and the next Stravinsky is out there. We just have to go find them. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Well, and to hear you speak so highly of your colleagues is, is exciting too. I think it's- I'm in awe of my colleagues. Like I, I listen to the music they created and I'm just like, wow. Like, <laughs> you know, wow. Like I, I really, you know, like not only hearing my colleagues' music, but the watch them perform as well. Cause I know some talented musicians and it's like, you know, some great some great stuff is being done in the music world today so well and i feel like it's like when you can connect with you know people that you're so close with and watch them you know rise to i feel like it pulls you up with them um instead of i feel like there's this stereotype that some classical musicians are like all out to get each other and don't want to see each other succeed it comes from that scarcity mindset so it's just really refreshing to hear your viewpoint and to hear you speak to that is like, no, man, if my buddy's killing it, like we're all killing it. This is awesome. Like, so just on a personal selfish level, it's really refreshing to hear this. <laughs> so, Absolutely. <laughs> so tell us what it was like to, um, the process with the orchestra Seattle. Cause that was now correct me if I'm wrong. That was a commission that also performance, correct? Yes. Mm-hmm. So what was the piece that they commissioned and how was it um, like the process of getting out there to Seattle? <clears throat> so I have a, my, my connection to them is through their music director, Will White. Uh, and Will White is a beloved mentor of mine for many years. I actually met him not too long after he finished being the assistant conductor of the Cincinnati Symphony. And he was, I, he was at the time I met him, he was uh, conducting a youth orchestra in Portland and was job hunting. But we connected through because we're both composer conductors and stuff like that. And I remember reaching out to him for advice and he, we had a phone call and we just kind of hit it off and kept in touch and stuff like that. And he's been a guiding light for me ever since. And not too long after that, he got the job in Seattle as their music director. He's their second music director ever. Wow. <laughs> and they were founded in 1969. So 2019, 2020 was their 50th season. Wow. And they wanted to, you know, celebrate it by commissioning a new work. And will commission that new work for me. And then he not only commissioned it for me, but he invited me out to conduct it as well because he knows that you know, I've, I conduct and I've worked with him a little bit as well. And so, yeah, I mean, this kind of happened that, you know, he, you know, sought to kind of, you know, bring to, bring to life a new piece to commemorate a, a joyous moment in that orchestra's hi- history, which is called a joyous trilogy. And, and so, yeah, that's just, that's just kind of how it happened. You know? That's awesome. Yeah. Very cool. It's a really cool experience too, going out there. I've never been to Seattle before, so it's a really beautiful city. I love Seattle. <laughs> yeah, Seattle's such a cool city, full of life and energy. I loved it. Rains a lot, but yeah, yeah. 
bring a raincoat or some boots. <laughs> but yeah, but you uh, now have you worked with the DSO as well? Yes, I've composed. Uh, they commissioned me twice. First time they commissioned me was last year, September 2019. And the second time was this summer for a piece that's premiering next week, actually. Wow, very cool. Very cool. So, yeah, I'm very familiar with that orchestra because I grew up with it. I went to my first youth concert in 2006 when I was 10. It was Peter and the Wolf with Sting narrating. Whoa. I didn't know it was serious at the time. I love yeah, that I remember, version. Remember distinctly, it was Sting. <laughs> well, it's like I didn't. I, I still don't know who Sting is. Like <laughs> nobody knows who Sting. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Believe it or not, my first introduction to Sting was a yoga video. He did a yoga video. Oh yeah, gosh, what? For it, and I was like, "This is Sting," and then it like I started putting the pieces together, and he's got like a recording of like some John Dowland from you know the medieval renaissance era and i was like who like the guy that sings in the like what <laughs> the guy from police so, sings like, John guy, Dallin. Yeah. <laughs> you'd be surprised he's everywhere <laughs> no i remember my mom's a big sting fan because she grew up listening to the police and uh so you know she was all about that and when he released his john Dallin music and renaissance music yeah. and things on the loot she was all about it and purchased all his tapes and uh i mean we even got the the new one where he went a little more electronic you know and um but yeah i remember distinctly that peter and the wolf with him narrating uh because they i saw one where it was like puppets um mm. and it was like gross caricature of sting and his his face and things and it was just I remember being so funny, but at the same time, I was a little kid, and I was just like, this is amazing. <laughs> when they did it at the DSO, they had, like, characters come out and like, dress. And it was real weird. Even when I was 10, I thought it was weird. Really? <laughs> but, you know, but they, you know, it was a cool experience. And so that's how I, that was my very first introduction to the DSO. So more, more almost a two-decade you know, association almost. That's, That's awesome. Cool. Holy cow. Well, and to get to like, I don't know, I feel like it's exciting when you get to watch um, or an organization, like how they age throughout the years. Maybe age isn't the right word, but like, okay, so what are they doing as time progresses? Are they moving forward with things? How are they evolving as an organization? So that's pretty cool to like have that intimate relationship with that orchestra and get commissioned by them. That's awesome. <laughs> Definitely watch. I've definitely watched that orchestra move forward into like the 23rd century. Like they're definitely moving forward fast. And I got to hear the how the sound of the orchestra changed over the years. And it's definitely gotten a lot more warmer, I would have to say. But they're doing some great things right now, especially since we just got a new music director, Fabio. Yeah. Who is absolutely amazing. Yeah. Fabio Luisi is absolutely amazing. So cool. That's awesome. I have to come up and listen to the DSO when we can finally go around. Oh, you should. You should. Yeah. I mean, I know I lived in Dallas for like a month or so and we never had a chance to connect, but that would have been so cool to stay up there. I love, it was such a cool city. So. Yeah. A lot of cool stuff happens here. So uh, yeah, come back, come back and see us sometime. <laughs> Man, I gotta get down to Texas. It's been too long. <laughs> I yeah. actually grew up in Houston. So we've kind of touched on this a lot, well, a little bit, 
um, about you being a conductor and, um, you know, a lot of people associate, you know, a composer that does conducting on the side, um, you know, so like take uh, Jennifer Higdon, you know, she's, you know, world famous composer, but little known is that she's also a really good conductor. Um, and uh, so do you, do you, how do you think being a conductor helps you with your composing? It definitely goes hand in hand. Like, you know, there's a quote from the great Esapekka Solomon that goes, my music wouldn't sound the way it does if I hadn't had the experience of conducting. And whenever you conduct, you feel music physically. Mm. And somehow, somehow, I can't really explain it, but it finds its way into your composing. And it, it almost makes you write more natural sounding music that fits under, you know, it, it feels pleasant to play and pleasant to, you know, kind of almost like perform and stuff like that. It feels, just feels more natural. You know what I'm saying? And, you know, when, whenever you like compose and conduct, it's really weird whenever you have to conduct your own compositions because then you'd have to, you, you spend all your time writing the piece, right? Then you have to go back and you have to relearn your whole oh, yeah. piece, how, how to beat it, how to explain it to the orchestra, how they rehearse it and stuff like that. That was, you know, that was one of the things I kind of ran into when I was out, whenever I was rehearsing orchestra Seattle was, uh, I had to rehearse my own composition. And that was, I was very new to that, even though I had done it before, Yeah. but in a smaller context, but then all of a sudden I was faced with this huge orchestra. Yeah. And so, <laughs> it was, it was, it was a learning experience for sure. And so, you know, I'm, I'm definitely no, you get better with experience for sure. And actually my next engagement uh, is in late January. So a couple months from now, I will be conducting the Musica Nova Orchestra in Phoenix, Arizona, oh. in another piece of mine. But this one is going to be for strings. Nice. And so, I, you know, I'm going going little for, for now, but it's another, you know, another chance to kind of, you know, put together something that hasn't been, you know, never done before. It's going to be a very special moment because the concert is about, you know, it's a it's a rebirth concert, and then, you know, seeing what happened today, the piece I wrote is about renewal and rebirth and stuff like that, and so definitely it's going to be a very poignant piece. And yeah. so, with if you know what you want out of a piece, then conducting it should be no problem because then you have a vision, and then you have kind of I don't want I would have to say a map even like a, mm-hmm. a road to do what you want to do with that piece you know yeah yeah that's such a powerful connection to develop i think a lot of um young composers or at least i experienced this when i was at the university of montana in my undergrad you get this you get all excited to write a piece and then you write something that's like totally unplayable and you're like well it doesn't matter they can figure it out as a performer and it's it's such a rewarding experience when you can write a piece that like it's i love hearing when it's like you hand a performer a piece of music and they go that was fun to play and you're like yes i nailed it because like i never want and maybe it's just just me and it but it's like I never wanted to hand something to somebody that was like quote-unquote unplayable or like was a pain in the ass to like you know I always wanted people to enjoy playing my music when they got it so I think you know having like of course it makes sense if you're a conductor you're really really getting to work with those performers getting to hear their like oh you know this freaking bar 17 or whatever like blah 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 you get to hear all those like 
moments of like, okay, now I got to rework this. So yeah, that absolutely makes sense that that would be, you know, just a beautiful, amazing thing to develop that as you're, you know, composing. And yeah, always playing your own music is a, is a goofy one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I have I to up, admit, you know, like I grew up and, you know, when I was doing my bachelor's and I was just thinking, okay, I'm going to take all of these like pedagogical courses, like strings and winds and brass and learn kind of the technicalities of the instruments and things. But I had never really thought of like how conducting can also teach you these kinds of things uh, as you're becoming a composer, you know, I, mm -hmm. it's pretty cool. Definitely goes hand in hand. Like there's an, you know, I always say that, you know, composers should have the experience of conducting at least once, just so you know, yeah. what it's like and it will absolutely inform your music making and even all those methods classes you were taking inform is conducting and composing as well because you know when you're on the podium you have to play everything you yeah. have to know exactly the slide you know it's a, little, it's a bit more meticulous you have to know the slide positions on the trombone and the tuning of the timpani and all that you have to be able to tell when something's out of tune and yeah. so it's definitely a lot you have to do on the podium and so definitely studying you know, studying, being really intimate with the instruments is a plus in that regard. And for those who are listening, don't like when yeah. this episode will come out, this is recorded right after they announced Joe Biden was the winner. So uh, it's, you know, the rebirth, you know, we'll see what happens. Uh, yeah, couldn't be more relevant. <laughs> yeah, yeah. conductor composer or a composer conductor or are you uh somewhere in the middle do you what do you think and also let me tell you something i was so happy when i saw that question because it was <laughs> it's such a huge difference it's a huge difference between yeah. the two because you know a composer conductor is like a composer who conducts like john adams or thomas addis or something like that so they compose primarily right and then they you know conduct when they have to and then a con conductor composer is uh, someone who's conducted all their life and then decides they want to compose like the conductor William, uh, Wilhelm Furtwängler wrote two symphonies. Did you know that? No, I have never heard of this. Who is it? Wilhelm Furtwängler, who used to conduct the, uh, the Berlin Philharmonic during the 40s and 50s, wrote two symphonies. And they're like Bruckner, but like, you know, drawn out even more. <laughs> So if you have like a couple of hours, you might want to give his second symphony a listen. Okay. Okay. So, but you know, him and Esapek Solomon, who actually studied composition and played the horn and then became a conductor and stuff like that. And uh, actually, you know, conductors like Stokowski wrote a symphony and, and uh, Kubelik, also wrote a symphony and stuff like that. I guess today's examples of like a compose, a conductor composer would be like, like, you know, our new music director, Fabio Luisi mm -hmm. wrote a mass. Wow. It, it, it's, it's, it's okay. 
but he, he rolled a mass. And then there, I read something about uh, Yop von Spaden, uh-huh. who when they went into lockdown, he started composing. Oh, wow. So I'm definitely looking forward to seeing what he can't, what he comes up with. So. Yeah. But these are people who primarily conduct and stuff like that and then compose on the, you know, I guess decided to compose and see what happens, you know? Right. So there's a huge difference. So I'm definitely more of a composer and conductor because co- composition is my main thing. And con- conducting is something that I really like to do, but only do when I have to do it. Like, you know, uh, I got called to do the, the Music Nova thing. The Orchestra Seattle thing was an invitation that I was very happy to accept. And, mm-hmm. you know, I've also, you know, conducted, you know, world premieres by my colleagues, which is always very stressful because then it's not your music it's their yeah. music and you have to do it justice so yeah. but i always like that that thing of you know being a composer working with another composer as a conductor to bring their works to life so definitely one thing i plan to do in my conducting career is to conduct a lot of new music by my colleagues and tour it around too to wherever i end up going so looking forward to that that's awesome yeah, I was, you know, looking back and I was thinking, okay, well, who are these conductor composers? Who's a con- composer conductor? And, you know, I thought of like Mahler, um, mm-hmm. you know, and then of course, Esapekka Salonen um, and even like Stravinsky, like he conducted and he composed and uh, it's just one of those, I always wondered, what was it? Maybe that's an asset I should have picked up in my education. <laughs> I just like drop that one <laughs> another example is Berlioz who mm. was, he was yeah. a composer conductor but he led the world premiere of Liszt's first piano concerto with Liszt as the soloist oh wow, wow. so oh, that was that, that was really cool I found that out so so yeah and then Richard Strauss used to conduct Mahler symphonies mm-hmm. yeah so in history all of this goes hand in hand yeah yeah oh man i need to do more diving into this this is it's very fun stuff to study (laughs) yeah well and then of course there's the great boulez oh right right so (laughs) um yeah so so you see yourself more as the composer conductor Mm -hmm. yes okay now are you are you still at southern methodist or i think you said you're a freelancer now right now i'm freelancing and actually, I spent five years in it. My college life has been weird. The week after I graduated high school, I started community college, did that for two years, wow. then spent a year at TCU where I got some great experience. And TCU just wasn't, you know, the right place for me at that time. Mm-hmm. And so, and I, went, I found uh, the, the visiting student program at SMU where I could just focus on music and play in ensembles and all that in exchange for free composition lessons. And wow. I did that for two years as a non-degree student. And, well, I don't have a degree. But look at the experience you have. You don't need a piece of paper to tell you you're a composer. <laughs> I mean, it's something I've been thinking about, you know, and been talking to a lot of my mentors about. So I may go back to do a degree in conducting. Yeah. Not really a degree, but maybe just like a, a performer's diploma or something like that. Yeah. A place I've been looking at is San Francisco Conservatory because uh, mm-hmm. Edwin Outwater, who is a great, another great mentor of mine. And so I'm definitely looking at that for the future. But for now, that's probably not going to be for like two years because I'm 
book two years in advance with commissions and stuff like wow. that. Wow. No, like, oh. So that's the dream. You get the paper to get the dream, but you you bypass the paper and are in the dream. So. I mean, I've been working hard since I was like little. So yeah, well, it's, and it was like yeah. it paid off. So yeah. I think there's that misconception that like, oh, I have to go pursue higher education to get to be, you know, to make it as a composer. But I mean, if you find the right mentors and you put in the hours and hours and hours of study and writing, like you can bypass that formality of I have a degree in this and have arguably a more successful or just a successful career. So that's all to you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, it's, 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 it's right for some people. And yeah, right. yeah, absolutely. And it's, cool. I think, any path you choose is is a good one as long as you're dedicated and you put the work in and absolutely yeah. although if you went to san francisco you could study with david conti too and uh, yeah he's brilliant <laughs> okay <laughs> name dropping all the emo professors <laughs> yeah really <laughs> yeah so that kind of touched on at least my last question was like future plans so your book two years out um man you've got the musica nova thing uh, I mean, is there anything like else that you can tease us with? I can share some of my my future projects. Yeah. Besides the music, no, that's already been written, yeah. and it's the parts are sent off, and the score is being studied right now. Oh I'm wow! Re- I'm in the process of restudying what I've written. It's hard, but I have a vision <laughs> for the piece. But some of my upcoming stuff that I'm writing is. I'm writing an oboe piece for someone who actually used to be in the National Symphony Orchestra. And it's uh, going to be called Dream Tri- uh, Dream Triptych or Dream Trilogy or something like that. And and the second movement will be in the memory of his mother who oh, passed cool. away recently. And so really interesting piece to write, especially for solo oboe, which I have no experience writing for in a solo context. So right. there's that. And then the things I'm booked for is um, uh, be, I'm, I'm working on my fifth symphony, actually, for Seattle, yet again. Yeah. And this is going to be specific. I'm not going to conduct this. Oh, no, I'm not going to conduct this. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be specifically for, for uh, Will White to conduct, because, you know, it's my gift to him for being such a great mentor for me for, you know, almost five years. So my fifth symphony. Wow. And, and I'm also kind of in the in the beta stages of a violin concerto specifically a concerto for violin and orchestra or another good friend of mine uh, the concert master of the wichita symphony uh holly what's her last name mulcahy who i connected with this summer she's she's absolutely fantastic and she's premiered two of my pieces so we have a relationship a working relationship and so and i just got commissioned for a piece, another piece for band, which is admittedly an avenue I haven't been down much. <laughs> I know there's a market for band, but I really haven't been writing that much for band. So, but it'll be really interesting. So, this is for two years, two years, like uh, 2022. So, oh, nice. That's awesome. Plenty of time to for band. <laughs> Do a lot of score oh, study yeah, on the band cool. writing. Well, I mean, David Maslanka, so. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think, um, so like I met him when he came down to Louisiana and worked with LSU. And then he went to Texas, right? And you met up with him there? 
When did you meet him at LSU? Oh, it was like six months before he passed away. If he went to L- if he went to Texas right after LSU, that was I may have that that may have been my meeting with him because he went to College Station. Hmm. And this was February 2017. Yeah, I think so. Well, okay, so he came into LSU at like 2018, I think. He. 2018? You sure? I think so. I don't have to. Now I have to Google it. He he passed in August 2017. Oh, has so, it really been that long? Yeah. 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 Oh. Which oddly enough, he lived in Missoula, Montana. I never met him, but I had some colleagues that studied with him when I was at the University of Montana. Mm. Oh, it was 2017. <laughs> So it was uh, August of 2017. Mm-hmm. So, but I remember meeting him and uh, yeah, it was crazy. So. Happened so fast too. So. Yeah. yeah. He left behind a bunch of great wind band works like his Ford Symphony. And I mean, all of his symphonies really like the eighth is absolutely fantastic. And actually I do have a bit of a funny story to tell because Actually, uh, sometime after he passed, I wrote Soul to Soul, which is a a, win, a, a piece of mine that's gaining a little bit of traction. Mm-hmm. And in it, I wrote it in the style of Maslanka to pay tribute to him. So I use, you know, chorales and I quote something from his symphonies as well. And, and, and you know, his, his general style of writing for band, I, you know, pay tribute to in that piece. And... I do insert a quote from the Eighth Symphony in that piece. And so I remember at the reading, which was at the the TCU band with Bobby Francis, uh, you know, the piece, they're playing the piece, they're reading it and stuff like that. And the grad student is sitting in front of me and he didn't have a score. And as soon as we got to that part, he turned around and was like, is that the Eighth Symphony? And I was like, you got me. (laughs) (laughs) So... (laughs) Oh, that's cool. Yeah, no, I told I mean, he him. He turned around like he was like, I know what you did there. <laughs> I got my eyes on you. <laughs> no, I told David, like, my favorite piece of his was uh, uh, the dreams, children's dreams, mm-hmm. Garden of Children's Dreams. And it's just like, um, it's such an amazing piece. You know, I, I don't think it gets enough recognition. Oh, it's, it's very challenging, too. It's a very hard piece of music, but it's so beautifully written. Oh, my gosh. Oh, yeah. He, he wrote for the band like it was an orchestra, and his fourth symphony was so inspiring to me. It's just like, because in high school, I played so many bad arrangements and sleigh ride, and <laughs> oh, my gosh. I mean, it, it kind of distorted my view of what band could really be. Mm-hmm. And then I heard, you know, his fourth symphony and I got a score and all that. And it just kind of gave me a whole new perspective on the medium. So, so I didn't make it a point when I met him to, you know, ask his secret for how do you write for the wind band so effectively? And he told me he likes to take walks and mm. stuff like that. And that's how he gets most of his ideas from nature. Cause he was a very spiritual person. Yeah. 
Because then he, he didn't listen to, he stopped listening to external music is what one of my friends was saying. And he, I mean, if you probably haven't been to Missoula, but Missoula is such a very connected, you're very connected with nature in Missoula. You're like in the city and you can drive five minutes in any direction and be in the hills and like completely out of town. And it's, it's such a beautiful place, but hearing, like hearing you say, I'm like, oh yeah, like, of course in Missoula, you can just, just dip out of town and just check out, you know, and yeah. No wonder he lived there then. So Yeah, yeah. Man, I wish I had done more. I think I was too young, didn't know what the hell was going on. I'm like looking back, I'm like, oh, I lived like 10 minutes from him. What the hell's wrong with me? <laughs> well, and every morning he woke up and he played a Bach corral. Yes. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. I remember he told me that. I do I remember like, when. Oh, I'm going to have to look at those more now. <laughs> <laughs> he definitely said it. it was kind of like his daily bread almost and stuff like that i do remember when he was doing like a seminar for like the composition students at a and m this was something different but he was doing that and then he was you know the, all of them brought in midi recordings and i think you know he was you know he was like okay let's humanize this this recording let's all because it was like a, a class of observers watching let's all sing this and then he conducted the entire class in a reading of that composition. Let's oh, put, he said, let's put a human element in it. That's what he said. And I'll never forget that. I didn't sing, but I'll never forget that. Yeah, I, I, remember, can't, I can't sing, so. Yeah. And I remember he told us, he's like, he would play through it and then he would pick a line, any of the lines, soprano, alto, tenor, bass. And then he would sing that while leaving that omitted in his playing. And I was just like, mm. what the? <laughs> It's like, Absolutely. oh my gosh. Oh. Did you did you did he tell you what happens when he like gets to the end of the, the, the all of the corrals? He starts again. Or he started again. Wow. Yeah, like he, he got to the end, he played them all, got to the end, and then played them all again. Well, so. just turn the page, flip the book back over and <laughs> no, very cool. Yeah, he was cool. This was just so fun. I just really enjoyed it. It was. Yeah. It's, you know, it's a very historic day, you know? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> it is. We just have to wait and see what happens, but it'll, it'll only get better from here. All right. Well, Quinn, thank you so much for joining us today and on this uh, big historic election day. Um, it's been so wonderful talking with you and discovering your music and uh, talking about the dichotomy of composer conductors. And uh, so thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks so much for this. Your story is incredibly inspiring. And I, I now have a page of notes to go research. So thank you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> sure. Perfect. All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Sounds of the World podcast. We hope you enjoyed the episode. There are links to everything in the episode description and also on our website. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Sounds of the World. To show support for Sounds of the World podcast, please join our Patreon, where you can have access to our after-party discussions with guests, discounted merchandise, and even more. If you have any questions, answers, or episode suggestions, please email us at soundsoftheworldpodcast at gmail.com. Well, Bill, I think I'm going to go have a beer now. Hey, there you go.